0: Chapter 31 The Sailors Return. And then came the natives. The first to arrive was Mrs. Dixon. Just as the fire was beginning to burn, the shipwrecked sailors saw her coming down the field from the farm above Shark Bay, with a milk can in one hand and a big bucket in the other, and there was Mr Dixon coming too, with a pair of oars over his shoulder. Mr Dixon bailed their boat and pushed it out and rowed Mrs Dixon across to the island, splashing as he rowed. Though the wind had gone down, there were still waves on the lake, even between the island and the shore. Whatever can they want?' said Nancy. Peggy and Titty had gone up to the lookout point to look at the lake. They came running back to the camp. Captain Flint's coming, shouted Peggy. He's nearly here, and there's another rowing boat, and there's a launch in the distance. I think it's ours. Mother's in the other rowing boat with a native, said Titty. If it's the launch, our mother's in it. I bet you anything, said Nancy. There are still quite big waves down the lake, said Titty, but mother's got past them all right. Everybody ran down to the landing place and got there just as Mr. Dixon stepped out and pulled his boat up. Mrs. Dixon clambered out with her big bucket and the milk can. She had a tray over the top of the bucket for a lid, and steam was coming from under it. No, it isn't pigwash," she said, though you might think it. It's porridge for drowned rats, which is what I reckon you'd be. You've done well to get your fire lit at all. I could hardly rest for thinking of you in that storm. My word, how it did come down. And so you found Mr Turner's box that was stolen. And I thought it was you that took it. Dixon told me the news when he came home from the village last night. The Swallows and Amazons looked at each other. Did everybody know everything? Porridge! Said "'Aye, porridge,' said Mr Dixon. "'There's no room in anybody f- for a cold "'if they're full up with hot porridge, "'so I always say, "'Have you got any spoons?' "'Lots. "'I'll just slop the milk into the bucket "'and give it a stir round. i put the sugar in up at the farm.' "'In another minute, "'the four swallows and the two Amazons "'were spooning hot porridge and milk "'out of the bucket "'and feeling each mouthful "'go scalding down their throats.' This really is eating out of the common dish, said Titty. Then came Captain Flint. Good for you, Mrs. Dixon, were his first words. I ought to have thought of that. Porridge was the very thing. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's all right. Nobody washed away in the night. Seven, said Titty, you've forgotten my parrot. He said, Pretty Polly at the lightning. "'and pieces of eight when it thundered.' Seven said Captain Flint, "'and two of the tents gone, I see. "'I was afraid they would. "'It was a wild go while it lasted. "'It was tough work bucketing into it even now, "'though the winds dropped "'and the lakes nothing to what it was. "'It settles very quickly. "'Then came Mother from Hollyhow, "'rowed by that powerful native,' mr jackson she had brought three big thermos flasks full of boiling cocoa <coughs> good morning mrs dixon she said that was very kind of you to think of coming across i was afraid they'd not be able to get their fire lit it's a wonder they have said mrs dixon we haven't been able to boil a kettle yet said susan we couldn't have lit it at all if nancy hadn't thought of keeping some sticks dry and You are the Amazons, said Mother, looking at Nancy and Peggy. Yes, said Nancy, and this is Captain Flint. His other name is Turner. How do you do, said Mother. And Captain Flint said, how sorry he was. He had not made friends with the Swallows before. You don't know how much I owe to these children, he said. Children? snorted Nancy back "'Explorers and pirates,' Captain Finn corrected himself. "'If it hadn't been for them, I should have lost all the work I've done this summer.' "'I heard something about it last night from Mrs Jackson,' said Mother. "'I'm sure I'm very glad that they came, that they've been of some use. "'Their father seems to think they're not duffers, but sometimes I'm not so sure.' "'Mother!' said John. The mother laughed." He's given me a parrot, said Able Seaman Titty, and Mother had to go and look at it. He's going to give me a monkey, said Roger. What? said Mother. Captain Flint explained, and Mother said that it must be a little one. It shall be, ma'am," said Captain Flint. Mother looked at the wrecked tents. They're no good in a wind, she said. I remember once in the bush. I was in a tent like that and it ripped to ribbons and was blown clean away. Well, she said, it's a good thing you haven't got to sleep in them tonight and a pity you didn't come home yesterday. I can hardly think so, ma'am, said Captain Flint. We wouldn't have found the treasure if we had, said Titty. The first thing to do is to put on some dry clothes, said Mother. I brought you a dry change for each of you four. "'Roger never got wet,' said Susan. "'That's a good thing,' said Brother. "'But you did, and so did John, and Titty looks like a dishcloth. "'Run down to the boat and ask Mr Jackson for the bundle.' "'Then came the launch, chug chugging into the landing-place "'and running its nose gently aground close by the three boats that were already there. "'The landing-place was so crowded that it was almost as bad as Rio Bay.' Captain Flint ran down there to meet the launch and Mrs. Blackett jumped ashore into her brother's arms. She was a very little woman, not really much bigger than Nancy and very like her. In the native talk that followed, her tongue went fastest. Captain Flint and Mrs. Walker just put in a word, sometimes. "'I'm so glad you're here,' Mrs. Blackett said to Captain Flint. "'Now then, Ruth.' Nancy, when she's a pirate, my dear, said Captain Flint, give her her right name. Uh, Nancy, then, and Peggy, skip into the launch, you harum em scarums, and get into dry things. You'll find them in the cabin. And how do you do, Mrs. Walker? You've met my brother, I see, and my wild young ones. And so these are the swallows, who turned out to be so much better than somebody thought they were. She, too, had heard the news, even though she lived at the other side of the lake from Rio. "'Well,' said Mrs. Dixon, "'I think I'll be going now, if if you've done with that bucket. "'I've the chickens to feed, "'and Dixon will be wanting to get to his sheep.' Both the mothers, and Captain Flint, and all the swallows and Amazons, thanked her for bringing such a good breakfast. "'Aye, there's nothing like porridge,' said Mrs. Dixon.' "'Well, I suppose I shan't be seeing any of you in the morning. "'I shall quite miss it. "'I've come to be in the way of looking for you, "'but uh, perhaps you'll be coming again next year. "'Every year, for ever and ever,' said Titty. "'Aye,' said Mrs. Dixon, "'we all think that when we're young.' "'Mr. Dixon, who was waiting down by the boat, "'had said good morning when he came, "'and now he said good day to you,' "'as he rowed Mrs. Dixon away.' He was always a very silent native. The others were not. They talked and talked, all native talk, about the storm and the burglary. Sometimes they asked questions which the Amazons found a little difficult to answer, though Captain Flint helped them out. Even Mr Jackson, the powerful, strong native from Holly Howe, wanted to know exactly "'how the swallows had found the box. "'At last the native talk began to slacken. "'What about packing up?' said Mrs. Blackett to the Amazons. "'You can put everything in the launch and come in it with me, "'and we can tow the Amazon.' "'Tow? Amazon?' said Nancy in horror. "'We're coming home under sail. We want no salvage.' "'Everything's so wet here,' said the mother of the swallows.' "'You'd better come back with me to Holly Howe.' "'Not now,' begged Titty. "'We're quite dry, and we've got a whole tin of pemmican left, "'and lots of bun loaf, and it's our last day.' "'It would have been very dreadful to be swept home in a flood of natives, "'even of the nicest sort. "'Half the pleasure of visiting different countries is sailing home afterwards. "'Besides, she had to say goodbye to the island.' John, Susan and Roger also begged to be allowed to stay. Nancy and Peggy flatly refused to go. "'What if it comes on to blow again?' said the swallow's mother. Here Captain Flint spoke. "'It's not going to do that,' he said. "'It was just the first of our autumn thunderstorms. "'It's blown itself out now, and I shouldn't be surprised "'if there's a dead calm before evening.' It may rain again tomorrow, but I'll almost guarantee good weather for today. And so it was agreed. Everything not wanted for the day was to be packed into Mr Jackson's boat, if it was to go to Hollyhow, and into the launch, if it belonged to the Amazons. The launch would tow Mr Jackson and his boat as far as the Hollyhow Bay, so that the two mothers... "'could be together in the cabin.' "'We've got a lot more to say to each other,' said Mrs Blackett. "'About coming next year,' said Peggy and Titty together. Mm, "'Perhaps,' said their mothers. "'The packing of Mr Jackson's boat came first. "'Captain Flint lent a hands, and it didn't take long. "'The sodden tents were rolled up. "'I'll spread them to dry after.' said Mr Jackson. The blankets were stuffed into a sack. Nancy wanted to empty the hay out of the hay bags and make a last blaze on the campfire. Nay, said Mr Jackson, it's good hay, that. So it was spared to be eaten by cows. All the swallows' things were stowed in Jackson's boat. Nothing was left but the big kettle for making tea, stores for the day, the parrot cage, and John's tin box. "'You don't want that,' said Brother. "'It's got the ship's papers in it,' said Captain John. "'We'll keep our tent,' said Captain Nancy, "'but we shan't want our sleeping bags and things.' At last the natives were ready to go. Captain Flint said, "'Good-bye.' "'Are you going too?' said Titty. "'I'm going in the launch with the others,' he said." I've got something to say to your mother about next year, and I've a lot to do, for I'm going to London tomorrow. There's that monkey to see about, you know, but I'll keep a lookout for you towards evening. At last the launch chugged away from the island, with the two rowing boats towing astern. Captain Flint's on a short painter, and Mr Jackson's on a long one from the port and starboard quarters. The natives waved as the launch moved off. Goodbye, swallows, called Mrs. Blackett. I shall expect you others when I see you. Don't be late, called Mother. If you're home by seven, I'll bring Vicky down to the boathouse. She'd like to meet the sailors coming home from sea with a parrot. Goodbye, Amazons. Goodbye, goodbye, called Nancy and Peggy. You will promise to come again next year? We'll come, said Mother. After they were gone, the Swallows and Amazons looked at each other. They were rather glum. It's the natives, said Nancy. Too many of them. They turn everything into a picnic. Mother doesn't, said Titty. "'Nor does ours when she's alone,' said Nancy. "'And Captain Prince not a bit like a native when he's by himself,' said Titty. "'It's when they all get together,' said Nancy. "'They can't help themselves, poor things.' "'Well, they're gone now,' said Peggy. "'Let's go on with the shipwreck. "'This is the day after we were thrown ashore. "'Now we've got to settle down for twenty years to watch for passing sails.' Well, we're going home this afternoon,' said Roger. "'You needn't say so,' said Titty. "'But it was no good. "'Everyone knew, and nobody could get back into the old mood. "'We ought to bail the ships,' said John. "'That was better. "'It was something that had to be done. "'There was a lot of water in both the ships. "'The wet thwarts were steaming and drying in the sun, "'which was already hot, but the sails were very wet.' They hoisted the sails to dry them and then went back to the camp. The camp looked much smaller. There were pale, unhealthy patches where the swallows' tents had stood and bleached the grass under the ground sheets by hiding it from the sun. The Amazon's tent stood alone and forlorn without its companions. Come on, said Nancy, we've got to take it down anyway so to, to strike it, I mean, so we might as well set about it. It was stiff work getting the poles out of the hems in the wet canvas, but everybody helped. The tent was loosely rolled up, the poles were taken to pieces and made into a bundle and wrapped in the ground sheet. The Swallows and Amazons looked sadly round their camping ground. There was now nothing but the fireplace with its feebly burning fire, the square, pale patches where the tents had been, the parrot's cage in a patch of sunlight, and Susan's kettle, and a few mugs and the pemmican tin and the bun loaf, and John's tin box, to show that it had ever been the home of the explorers and their pirate friends. When we've gone, said Titty, someone else may discover it. They'll know it's a camp because of the fireplace, but they'll think the natives made it. If anyone takes it, we'll barbecue them, said Nancy Blackett. It's our island, yours and ours, and we'll defend it against anybody. We're going to school at the end of the summer, said Peggy. So are we, said Susan. Well, we won't be in school forever, said Nancy. We'll be grown up, and then we'll live here all the year round. So will we, said Titty, and in the winter we'll fetch our food over the ice on sledges. I shall be going to sea some day, said John, and so will Roger, but we'll always come back here on leave. I'll bring my monkey, said Roger. And the parrot shall always come, said Titty. Well, it's no good hanging about, said Nancy. Let's put to sea. Everything left was carried down to the harbour and stowed in the ships. Susan emptied the kettle on the fire. Titty took the parrot all over the island so that when they got home it would remember her favourite places. At the last minute, John thought of the rope for hoisting the lantern on the lighthouse tree. He ran back there and loosed one end of the rope so that it ran over the bow high overhead and came down with a thump on the damp ground. He coiled it and brought it to the harbour. Then they put to sea. The waves had gone down and so had the wind, but there was still a strong swell. Winds from the south, said Captain Nancy. We'll beat into it. We know a fine place for a landing down the lake, and then we'll have to then we'll have the wind with us for the run home. We'll follow you, said Captain John. He wanted Swallow to be the last to leave. In Swallow, Roger was in the bows, Able Seaman Titty and the big parrot cage in the bottom of the boat just aft of the mast, and Susan and John in the stern. John was steering. Soon after they'd worked Swann out of the harbour and she was sailing on the port tack, Titty, who had been talking to the parrot, said Captain John, how are we to put Polly onto the ship's articles? Well, you've got a captain and a mate, and an able seaman and a boy, I'll sign him on as ship's parrot, said Captain John. Have you got the ship's papers here? asked Titty. It would never do for him to sign on after the voyage was over. John handed the tiller to the mate, opened his tin box and dug out the articles that had been assigned by everyone so long ago on the peak of Darlian. There was plenty of room for another hand. He wrote, Polly, ship's parrot. Then he gave the paper to the able seaman. You'll have to sign for him, he said. But the able seaman had opened the parrot's cage, and the parrot came out in a stately manner, as if he knew he was wanted on business. You can't exactly sign, said Titty. But lots of sailors can't. You must wet your dirty claw and make your mark. Pieces of eight, said the parrot. He's asking about his pay, said John. The able seaman wetted the parrot's very dirty claw and put the paper under it. The parrot stepped firmly in the right place and left a good print of his claw, though he did put the point of one toe through the paper. Titty wrote beside it, Polly, his mark. Ready about, cried Susan, and John and Titty ducked their heads as the boom came over, and Swallow slipped round and off on the other tack, hesitating for hardly a moment, and then butting cheerfully through the waves. Doesn't Amazon look fine, said Susan, looking at the little white-sailed boat ahead of them, with her fluttering black-and-white flag and her two red-capped sailors. Swallow must look just as fine, said Captain John. Finer, said Titty. We've got a brown sail. They sailed on, tacking from one side of the lake to the other, and back again, until they were within a mile of the steamer pier at the foot of the lake. Here they were passed by one of the big lake steamers "'crowded with passengers, who came to the side and pointed. "'The captain, who was steering her, took out his binoculars "'and looked through them at the little swallow. "'By now the news had run all over Rio and up and down the lake "'about the way in which the swallows had found the box "'that had been stolen from Mr. Turner's houseboat. "'Suddenly a loud cheer sounded over the water.' And again, and again. The passengers waved their hats and shouted, "'What is the matter with the natives on the steamer?' said Roger. Then one of the sailors ran after the flagstaff of the steamer's stern, and the big red ensign dropped to half-mast and then rose again. "'They're cheering at us,' said Captain John, turning very red. "'How horrible!' They've saluted, said Susan, oughtn't we to answer. The Amazons are. They could see Peggy at the halyards, busy dipping the Jolly Roger. Titty shut the parrot in his cage and lowered Swallow's flag and raised it again. It's a good thing we're going away, said Captain John. They'll have forgotten about it by next year. The big steamer hurried on. The Amazon headed into a little bay on the western shore of the lake. The Swallow followed her. There were woods all round the little bay and a small stream ran into it. The Swallows and Amazons landed close by the mouth of the stream. What a splendid cove, said Captain John. It's one of our most private haunts, said Captain Nancy altogether free from natives. The road's miles away on the other side of the woods. No one ever comes here except us, and no one can see we're here, even from the water, unless they happen to look right in. They made their fire, and boiled their kettle by the side of the little beck, noisy after the night's rain. The jetsam on the shore was very wet, but in the wood they found a few dry sticks here and there. They started the fire with a handful of dry moss. It was not easy to get it going, but once it was well lit, the fire burnt well enough to boil the kettle. Here, away from the island, they spent their last day, until Captain Nancy noticed that the lake was nearly calm. "'It's going to take us a long time to sail home,' she said. "'What orders, Commodore?' John started. He'd been thinking of something else. "'The fleet sets sail and steers north,' he said. Very slowly, the two little ships moved out of the bay into the open lake. There was very little wind, though now and again a cat's paw hurrying from the south helped them on their way and darkened the smooth, small waves.' "'You'd never think it could have blown like it did in the night,' said Roger. "'They sailed up the sail with the booms well out. "'Up in the woods on the high hillside, smoke was rising. "'They could hear the noise of the charcoal-burner's axes in the now quiet air. "'They'll still be here when we're gone,' said Titty. "'Who?' said Susan. "'The savages,' said Titty. "'The wind was dropping.' The boom swung aft, and the main sheet, now and then, caught the water and trailed in it. "'Sit on the lee side, able Seaman,' said John. "'That'll keep the boom out.' Nancy, in the Amazon, was sitting on the lee side for the same reason. "'Hadn't we better row?' said Roger. "'You want a motorboat,' said Captain John. "'No, I don't,' said Roger. "'Sail's the thing.' Slowly, the fleet slipped past Wildcat Island. The island was once more the uninhabited island that Titty had watched for so many days from the peak of Darien. And yet it was not that island. John, looking at it, remembered the harbour and the leading lights and his swim all around it and the climbing of the great tree. For Roger, it would always be the place where he had swum for the first time. For Susan, it was the camp and housekeeping and cooking for a large family. Titty thought of it as Robinson's Crusoe's Island. It was her island more than anyone's because she'd been alone on it. She remembered the path she had cleared and waking in the dark and hearing the owl. She remembered the dipper. She remembered getting Amazon out of the harbour. She looked suddenly across the lake to Cormorant Island, and then at Amazon slipping silently through the water a cable's length away. Had she ever really been anchored in Amazon out there in the dark? As they passed houseboat, Bay, Captain Flint rode out to say goodbye once more. Goodbye, they shouted. Till next year, he shouted back and rested on his oars and watched the fleet as it sailed slowly on towards the peak of Darien. Under the peak of Darien, the fleet broke up. There were more shouts of, Goodbye, remember the Alliance, come again next year, three cheers for Wildcat Island, and they all cheered. Three cheers for the Swallows, shouted Nancy, and for the Amazons, they shouted back. John hauled his wind and stood in for the Boat boathouse. Amazon held on her course. She was soon out of sight beyond the further point of the bay. I wish it wasn't over, said Roger. No more pemmican, anyway, said Susan. What about singing salt beef, said Titty? So they sang. Salt beef, salt beef is our relief, salt beef and brisket beddo. Salt beef, salt beef is our relief, salt beef and biscuit beddo. While you on shore and a great many more on dainty dishes Feddo, don't forget your old shipmate Falderold de Riddle, Falderdle dear Do Susan is the old shipmate, said Roger. We all are, said John. What's the song they sing at the end of the voyage? said Susan. Titty began, and the others joined in at once, for they all knew it. Oh, soon we'll hear the old man say, Leave her, Johnny, leave her. You can go ashore and take your pay. It's time for you to leave her. Leave her, Johnny, leave her like a man. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. Oh, leave her, Johnny, leave her while you can. It's time for us to leave her. "'Who was Johnny?' said Roger. "'Oh, hello, there's Mother and Vicky coming down the field.'" Swannadale, Chapter 2, Wildcat Island I wonder what they mean by native trouble... "'said Abel, Seaman titty when she had read the letter carefully through to herself. "'That's just Nancy,' said mate Susan. "'She always thinks there's no fun without trouble, so she'd put it in anyhow.' "'But it's very queer about Captain Flint,' said John. "'They'll probably be here before we get the camp ready,' said Susan. "'And Mother and Bridget are coming to tea. Let's get to work.' We'd better get, We'd better start the fire first if they're watching for it, said John. We'll rouse them with a the red glare, like the burghers of Carlisle, said Titty, but of course it's the smoke that matters. They could see that if they'd gone up the hill behind their house. No one was so good at starting a fire as Mate Susan. In a moment she had a flame licking up her handful of dry leaves and setting light to the little wigwam of dead reeds and twigs that she'd built over it. A moment later the fire was taking hold of the larger sticks she'd built round it, with every stick pointing in towards the middle. There was a pleasant crackling of burning wood and a stream of clean, blue smoke from the dry fuel poured away through the green trees. Wildcat Island was once more inhabited. Now for the cargo, said mate Susan, standing up again and blinking the smart out of her eyes. Where's that boy? She took out her whistle and blew it. This brought Roger running back from the lookout post under the tall tree at the northern end of the island, always his favourite place. No exploring till the camp's pitched. "'Turn to, my hearties,' said the able seaman. "'That's what Captain Nancy would be saying. "'Turn to, then,' said the mate. "'All hands to discharge cargo,' said Captain John, "'and the whole crew set to work getting the things out of the boat "'and carrying them up through the trees to the clear space "'where they meant to camp.' "'As soon as the swallow was clear of cargo, "'Captain John rowed her down to the foot of the island "'and then, sculling, with one oar over the stern, brought her into the harbour, steering her in through the rocks awash and underwater by keeping the two marks on shore, that's to say the stump with the white cross on it and the forked tree exactly one behind the other. Then he rolled up the sail, coiled the ropes and moored Swallow with the painter over her bows to the stump with the white cross on it and a warp over her stern to a stout bush on one of the rocks, so that his little ship lay afloat and as snug as any ship's captain could wish. He looked her all over, everything was as it should be, and he hurried back to the camp by the old path from the harbour. It had grown over again a good deal since Tiddy had trimmed it last year. In the camp, the fire was already roaring in the stone fireplace under the big black kettle brought from Holly Howe. Each of the four new sleeping tents lay where it was to be put up, and the mate was only waiting for the captain to help her to sling the store's tent on a rope between two trees. This didn't take long, and as soon as the tent was hanging from its rope, the able seaman and the boy were kept hard at it, filling the pockets along the bottom of the tent walls with little stones to keep them in place. Then one of the old ground sheets was spread inside, and in about two minutes the mate had bundled in everything that was not going to be wanted at once. The sleeping tents needed no trees, but it was a hard job to find places where the stony ground would take the tent pegs. There were stones almost everywhere close under the mossy turf but by shifting a stone here and a stone there and making holes ready for the pegs before trying to drive them in the explorers managed very well and soon all four tents were standing arranged so that anyone lying in any one of them could see the fireplace through the doorway. Then the guy ropes were tightened up the ground sheets were spread, the sleeping bags unrolled and a little (coughs) candle-duntered fixed as a safe place at the head of each tent, well clear of the walls. Almost everything was to be kept in the store's tent, but Roger had got a new fishing rod and would not let it be stacked with the others, but wanted it with him in his own tent. It doesn't take any room longwise, he said and I might want to fish with it any time. Titty would not be parted from her box of writing things, and of course John kept in his own tent the tin box with the ship's papers and had his watch and a little barometer he had won as a prize at school, hanging from hooks on the bamboo tent pole at the head of his tent, so that he could unhook them and look at them in the night without having to get up. "'It's a far better camp than last year,' said Titty, "'looking at the four sleeping tents and the stall tent "'that once had been hers and Susan's. "'And it'll be better still when the Amazons have put their tent up in the old place. "'Let's put some damp stuff on the fire to make a smoke they can't help seeing.' "'It doesn't matter how soon anybody comes now,' said the mate. "'Titty and John pulled handfuls of damp green grass,' "'and threw them on the fire until a thick column of bitter grey smoke poured up and nearly choked them. "'Is the boy up at the lookout point?' said the mate. "'Roger crawled hurriedly out of his tent where, just for a minute, he had been practising being asleep, ready for the night. "'Can we explore now?' he said, and, "'Can I take the telescope?' "'It's in the captain's tent.' said the mate. No, I've got it, said the captain and handed it over to the ship's boy who dashed off with it at once to lookout point to lie there hidden behind a clump of heather with a telescope poking through it so that without being seen he could look far up the lake as far as the islands off Rio. The parrot, who had been quiet for some time, suddenly called out pieces of eight, pieces of eight Titty opened the door of his cage. Come on, Polly, you can come out and enjoy yourself like everyone else. The parrot scrambled out at once, but took no notice of Titty, who offered him her hand to perch on. The parrot had its cold eye on the arrow with the green feather that Roger had stuck in the ground by the woodpile, and the moment his cage was opened he made straight for it. Titty saw what he was after and quickly pulled up the arrow and put it out of the parrot's sight on the top of the woodpile. ''No, no,'' she said. ''You know you'll only chew them and rumple them till they're no good for anything. It isn't as if you moulted such a lot of them. There aren't any to spare. ''Susan, may I give him a lump of sugar?'' But the parrot was not to be comforted with sugar. What he wanted was his own green feathers from the Amazon's arrow, and as he could not have them, he went back into his cage to sulk. They left the parrot to forget his bad weather and hid the arrow behind some of the boxes in the store's tent because, as John said, the Amazons were sure to want it, and as Titty said, Polly didn't seem to like seeing his feathers being useful after he'd thrown them away himself. The captain, the mate, and the able seaman... went together along the path by the western shore of the island, down to the harbour to see Swallow lying there in her old snug berth. It was no use waiting for Roger. After all, there would be the boat from Hollyhow bringing the best of all natives and the ship's baby, and then there might be Captain Flint in his big rowing boat, and at any minute the little white sail of the Amazon might come into sight from um, among the Rio Islands. There really was some sense of being a lookout, and nothing would stir Roger from his post. On the beach in the harbour there were the marks of several boats. One, of course, showed where John had landed in the swallow. The others, they thought, must have been left by the Amazon. They probably beached here while they were putting the new paint on the leading mark, said John. "'And piling up all that wood,' said Susan. "'They've painted it very well,' said Titty, "'looking at the white cross painted on the tree stump "'that served with the fork tree behind it "'to show the way to mariners who wished "'to bring their ships in safely through the rocks outside. "'And the nails are still there. where well, we had the lanterns last year.' <clears throat> "'Mother says, "'No more night sailing,' said John. "'And i promised.' so we won't want the leading lights. We can easily plan things that don't need night sailing, said Titty. There's a lot of the Antarctic unexplored and all the Arctic at the other end of the lake. It's no good talking about that till the Amazons come, said John. And Captain Flint, said Titty. There was a great deal to look at. There was the rock where Titty had lain flat on her stomach and seen the dipper bob at her and fly underwater. There was the rock she had hidden behind when Nancy and Peggy had come ashore with a lantern in the dark and she'd been alone on the island. John, looking at the little waves lapping on the rocks outside, was remembering how Nancy had first shown him how to use the marks. Susan, looking down the lake, was trying to find the place where she had made a fire on the shore after their visit to the charcoal burners up in the high woods. This year there was no trickle of smoke up there among the trees, and indeed Mrs Jackson, the farmer's wife at Hollyhow, had told them already that the charcoal burners were not working on this side of the lake, but up beyond the moor on the other side, in the next valley. All three, even Susan, who was mate, felt herself in charge of the others, John, though captain, was a boy and not to be counted on in some things, walked on their toes springily and talked very quietly. To be back on Wildcat Island was almost too good to be true. Titty dipped her hands in the cool water of the harbour just to show herself that she was really there. They went slowly back pushing their way through the bushes above the western shore, looking out through the leaves at the bright glint of evening sunshine on the lake below them. They had been all over the island and were just thinking of bathing when they heard a shrill yell from the lookout point. There they are! All three of them ran up through the camp and under the tall tree. Roger was lying on his stomach at the edge of the cliff that dropped down into the lake from there. Where? Where? said John, looking everywhere for the little white sail of the Amazon. There were rowing boats, motorboats, a few big yachts and a steamship, but no little white sail was to be seen. Mother and Bridget, said Roger. Let me have the telescope, said the mate. She took one look. Then gave the telescope to Titty and ran down again into the camp. Titty looked. Already this side of houseboat bay she could see the native rowing boat from Holly Howe. Mother was rowing and Bridget was sitting in the stern in the middle of a lot of parcels. Titty ran down to the camp to help Susan. Susan was right. There was no time to lose if a kettle was to be brought to the boil and everything else had to be made just as it should be. John and Roger waited together upon lookout point, watching the rowing boat grow larger until even without the telescope, it was easy to see who was in it. At last the rowing boat was was within hailing distance. Bridget waved and mother looked over her shoulder as the captain and the ship's boy called to her over the water Presently they were looking down into the rowing boat as Mother rowed past, and then they ran down through the camp to join the mate and the able seaman at the landing place. Mother brought her boat in just as they got there. "'Last year we rubbed noses,' said Titty as Mother stepped ashore. "'Do you remember being a native?' "'I don't see why we shouldn't do it again,' said Mother, and she did. And after that, of course... The ship's baby went native and had to rub noses with everyone all round. Tea's all ready, said Susan, but we came away without any bread. That's all right, said Mother. It was on my list, not yours. Bread and bun loaf. And you were going to bring us some milk. I brought you enough for tonight, but you'll get the morning's milk from Mrs Dixon's. She'll be expecting you. We sent a word along from Holly Howe. Everybody helped to carry up the stores from the boat. Susan hurried on ahead with the loaves and the milk can. Bridget ran after her with a big packet of candles for the lanterns. Mother stayed till the last of the stores had been taken out of the rowing boat. Then she helped John, Titty and Roger to carry them up into the camp. It's a very good camp, she said, as she came into it and saw the four little tents and the store's tent among the trees. And, I must say, you haven't been long in getting a grand store of wood together. The Amazons did that for us, said Susan. What? said Mother. Were Nancy and Peggy here to meet you? I I half thought you might find them here. How jolly. And have you seen your friend Captain Flint? We haven't seen them yet said susan but they've been here and left the wood for us and a letter fixed with one of their arrows green feathers you know polly's from last year said titty peace or war said mother oh peace of course to start with anyhow said john but um, captain flint isn't in his houseboat said roger and he's gone and covered up the cannon with a black sheet really said mother He must be stopping with his sister at Beckfoot. I had a note from Mrs. Blackett after you started. She's coming over tomorrow afternoon to Hollyhow with her brother and Miss Turner. Mrs. Jackson at Hollyhow wanted to start cleaning the whole farm up as soon as she heard Miss Turner was coming. I didn't know there was a Miss Turner, said John. She's Nancy's and Peggy's great aunt, said Mother. Why a great aunt? asked Roger. Because she's aunt to Mrs. Blackett, and so to your Captain Flint, and so she's great aunt to your allies. What's become of Bridget? Bridget! Bridget! There was no answer, but Titty pulled Mother's sleeve and pointed to one of the tents. Anybody could see that there was something crawling about in it. "'I'd forgotten that she was ship's baby,' said Mother. "'Susan, Mr Mate, would you mind blowing your whistle to let the ship's baby know it's time for tea?' Mate, Susan blew her whistle, and a moment later the tousled head of the ship's baby showed at the door of the captain's tent as she came crawling out. "'I shall soon have to be making a tent for Bridget,' said Mother. "'Next year she'll be wanting to go to sea like the rest of you.' "'Couldn't you make a tent for Jibber too?' said Roger. "'I don't believe He'd really like it, said Mother. Jibber and Bridget were both on the ship's papers, but, for different reasons, were not really members of the crew. Bridget was too young. She was only three. And although she was growing up fast and everybody had stopped calling her Vicky because she no longer looked like Queen Victoria in old age, She was hardly old enough and strong enough for the hardships of life on shipboard or on a desert island. She was to stay at Holly Howe with Mother. Jibber was the monkey. He'd been given to Roger by Captain Flint after last year's adventures. He was very active and tireless, and Mother had said that he would be altogether too much of a good thing in someone else's farmhouse. Roger himself, when asked if he would really like to share his tent with the monkey at night, has agreed that perhaps it would be as well if the monkey had his summer holidays at the same time as the rest of the walkers had theirs. So the monkey had been packed off to spend a happy month staying with relations at the zoo. That first night on Wildcat Island, the explorers ran tea on into supper. It didn't seem worthwhile to have two boilings and two washing-ups when tea was late already. So after tea had really begun, there was a great scrambling of eggs in the frying pan by Susan, a great buttering of bun loaf and bread by Mother, A lot of stoking of the fire by Titty, while the boy took a big mouthful of bun loaf to last out and went down with the captain to bring up the saucepan full of water so that it could be put on the fire the moment the kettle came off and the eggs were cooked. Then, when supper was over, Mother lent a hand with the washing up and it got done much faster than most people would think possible. Then Bridget had to see the parrot put to sleep in the store's tent with his blue cover over his cage so that he should not wake the camp by loud shouts at dawn. Then both the visitors were taken all over the island and shown even the harbour, which had been kept secret the year before. At lookout point, Bridget was allowed to look through the telescope But it was already after her bedtime and Mother was in a hurry to take her back. "'Time for Bridget's watch below,' she said. She didn't get half the sleep she should have had last night after the railway journey, what with all the chattering there was between decks.' The others laughed. "'Well, it was the first night of the holidays,' said John. "'At least the first that really counted.' "'Well,' said Mother, "'she's got to make up for it tonight.' The four explorers took the best of all natives and the ship's baby down to the landing place and saw them into their boat. I think you should be all right, said Mother, saying goodbye. We jolly well are, said John. Remember what Daddy said, and don't go and be duffers and get drowned. And, of course, if you want anything, give a note to Mrs Dixon in the morning when you go for the milk. "'We'll send a mail anyhow,' said Titty. "'Push her off now, John. Good night. Don't stay up late. Get a good sleep. "'Let let me see. What was the word in native language? "'Gluck, was it, or drool? Drool. Drool!' "'Never mind about talking native,' said Titty. "'We've been teaching you English all this year.' "'So you have,' said Mother. "'Good night. Sleep like old trees and get up like young horses.' as my old nanny in Australia used to say. Good night, good night, good night, Bridgie. The four explorers ran up to the lookout point once more, partly to wave to Mother on her way up the lake, partly in the hope that they might yet see the little white sail that would show that Nancy and Peggy were coming to the island. It's too late for them to come now, said Susan. You never know with Nancy, said John. They'd think nothing of coming in the dark, said Titty. Well, we've left the place for their tent, said John. They watched the Hollyhow rowing boat grow smaller and smaller in the distance. At last it disappeared behind the peak of Darien. Roger, who had been following it as long as he could, shut the telescope with a click, yawned and rubbed his eyes. They went down into the camp. There was some tidying up and some washing of hands and faces at the landing place, a last expedition to the harbour to see that Swallow was comfortable for the night, and then Maid Susan began to hurry the crew to bed. She found it easy enough to persuade the explorers to get into their new sleeping bags and to lie down in their new tents. But this first night on the island, after a whole year away from it, nobody could settle down to sleep at once. One thing after another came into somebody's head. Sometimes it would be John who thought of it. Sometimes Titty, very often it was Roger. And sometimes even Susan had something to say, that she was afraid she would forget if she left it till the next day. Long after the captain had said, lights out, and the little lanterns had been blown out in each tent, talk went on. It stopped at last. Roger was asleep, and perhaps Susan. Titty whispered very quietly, John, what is it? What do you think yourself Nancy meant by native trouble? Oh, I don't know. Go to sleep, or they'll come and find us not up in the morning. Solidale, Chapter 20 Welcome Arrow. The day began badly. They were late with breakfast and after that there had been a wooding party and then when at last John had gone down to work up the mast he found that Captain Flint had been and gone. He had done a lot of work on the mast. He had indeed done two things that John had wanted to see done. A round hardwood cap with an eye for the flag halyards had been neatly fitted to the top of the mast and the sheave for the main halyard had been fitted in below it, a piece of neat work with the chisel. The pin on which it moved was flush with the mast, which had at this point been smoothed with sandpaper. John ran his hand over the place. I'd have liked to see him do it, he said to himself. This was not all. Close beside the mast, Captain Flint had left a lot of provisions, a huge roll of coarse sandpaper and a big can of linseed oil. Tied to the roll of sandpaper was a page from a notebook on which it on which was written, hurry up, get it good and smooth, and then don't stint the oil. John packed the provisions into his knapsack, which was empty except for the plane, which he had thought might perhaps be needed. He then settled down to hard work with the sandpaper to give the whole mast as smooth a smoother finish as Captain Flint had given to the masthead. In doing this, he soon forgot all the worries about what had happened to the Amazons. The smoothing of the mast left no room for any other thoughts. The wood changed colour and grew pale under the rubbing of the sandpaper so that it was easy to see just how far the final smoothing had gone. Each foot of the paler colour seemed to bring Swallow nearer to coming back. It was about half done when John suddenly remembered the time, looked at his chronometer, slung his stuffed knapsack on his back and hurried off up the beck. Swallowdale. In Swallowdale he found Susan, Titty and Roger more disappointed at his missing Captain Flint than pleased to hear that the mast was nearly done. Why didn't he come up to Swallowdale? said Susan. Perhaps he's gone native too, said Roger. Oh no he wouldn't, said Titty, not this year, not unless he had to. He's done the masthead most beautifully, said John. If he'd gone native, he wouldn't have bothered. There was something in that, but not enough to raise the spirits of the explorers very much. After dinner, Roger said he wanted to fish. Titty said she'd come too. Susan said that she was busy with all that wood to stack in Peter Ducks. Roger and Titty said they would help for a bit. Susan said they needn't bother. John said he was going down to the cove to go on rubbing down the mast. Down in the cove he forgot about tea and went on rubbing away with the sandpaper until the whole mast felt like soft velvet. He tried it with his fingers, looked at it sideways to see if there was the slightest roughness and decided at last that it would do. It seemed almost a pity to put the oil on, but he soon found that the oil made the mast look even better. He rubbed it with a handful of cotton waste that he had found pushed into the handle of the can, and the mast shone under the oil like a gleaming pebble from the lake before it has had time to dry. The clean Norway pole was thirsty for oil, and John rubbed away and rubbed away, turning the mast a quarter of a turn every now and then on the chocks of wood on which it lay. It's a better mast than the old one, I do believe, said John to himself. I wonder what Captain Nancy would think of it now. And with that he remembered that, except for Mary Swainson's gossip, there was still no news from the Amazon River. Just then, while he was resting and looking at the shining yellow mast, he heard a chug-chug of a motor launch. It was coming down the lake. And it sounded as if it was coming much nearer along the shore than most of the launches and steamers that he'd heard during the day. Or perhaps it was that he had been too busy to listen to the others. Now the whole mast was done and oiled, and he had to give it a little time to let this first coat of oil soak in, so his ears were awake to noises, and this chug-chug sounded to him so near the shore that he slipped out on the rocks on the northern side of the cove just to see what it was. Yes, it was a motor launch, and he was right. It was very near the shore. They'll have to turn out again before they get here, Captain John was saying to himself, or they'll be running on the pike rock, just like we did. He was watching for the launch to alter course when he began to think that there was something familiar about it. Suddenly he knew it was the Blackett's motor launch. From Beckfoot, the launch that he had seen first by the light of a torch in the boathouse... "'in the Amazon River, "'and seen again when Mrs Blackett came down to Wildcat Island in it "'on the morning after the great storm, nearly a year ago. "'Hurrah!' he said aloud. "'It's all right. They've forgiven. They're coming here.' "'And he jumped up and was going to wave to them "'when he thought that perhaps he'd better not. "'There were several people in the open forepart of the launch, "'and after all, he might be mistaken.' "'Better wait till he was sure. "'There'd be plenty of time to wave later, "'so he dropped into hiding and wriggled his way like a snake "'towards the mouth of the cove. "'The chug-chug of the launch came rapidly nearer and nearer, When at last John cautiously lifted his head "'among the heather, heather and rocks of the northern of the two headlands. "'The launch was hardly a dozen yards away.' "'He was right.' It was the launch from the boathouse up the Amazon, but he was glad he had not waved. The forward part of the launch was open, with seats running round it, and here were seated Mrs Blackett and that same grim elderly lady whom the Swallows had seen driving that afternoon when they'd looked down on the road from among the trees. They were both sitting with their backs towards Horseshoe Cove. And Peggy Blackett, looking not at all like a pirate mate, but like an ordinary little girl at a school speech day or a garden party, was pointing towards Wildcat Island or the woods on the far side of the lake, so that all their attention was drawn that way. Nancy Blackett was nowhere to be seen, and John wondered whether she was in such awful disgrace that she'd been left behind. He was thinking that perhaps she would have liked best to be left behind when suddenly he saw her. The launch was passing close by the mouth of the cove. John could even see the remains of a tea spread on the table in the little cabin of midships. Aft of the cabin was an open well and there was Captain Flint, dreadfully smartly dressed, steering the launch. And there, too, was Nancy Blackett. She was crouching low so that nobody in the forepart of the launch could see what she was doing. Captain Flint somehow seemed to be too much taken up with steering to notice her. She was in a best frock, as unnatural as Peggy's. But as she crouched there, John saw that she had a crossbow in her hand, He saw her take one look forward through the glass-windowed cabin. Everybody seemed to be following Peggy's finger and watching something far away on the other side of the lake. Just as the launch had passed the entrance to the cove, Nancy loosed her arrow. John thought he heard the twang of the bowstring, even though the noise of the motor was there as well. But perhaps he didn't the arrow flew across the water and stuck in a heather bush among the rocks on the southern headland where they'd landed after the shipwreck. Again, for a moment, John thought of jumping up and waving, this time to show that he'd seen, but after loosing her arrow, Captain Nancy was no longer looking towards the shore. In a moment, she'd pushed her crossbow out of sight under a seat in the steerage Slipped through the cabin and was already looking as proper as Peggy, talking to the natives in the forepart of the launch. Not even Captain Flint was looking towards Horseshoe Cove. A moment later, the launch was hidden behind the southern headland, and John couldn't see it, though he could hear it chugging away towards the foot of the lake. He heard a shout from among the trees where the beck ran out into the cove. "'Hello! Hello!' he called back, "'hurrying over the rocks on his way round the cove "'to look for the arrow. Roger came out of the wood, "'smelling his hand after touching the newly-oiled mast. "'Titty's close behind,' he said, "'and Susan says we're to tell you that you've had no tea "'and she's cooking supper early. "'She's cooking it now. "'And, she says, don't be late. "'And you mustn't. Titty and I caught two trout each, fat ones, one for each of us, and Susan's cooking them, and... "'Did you see the launch?' asked John. "'I can hear one,' said Roger, just as Titty joined them on the beach. "'It was the Amazon's launch from the Amazon River, the one we saw in the boathouse last year. "'And Captain Nancy was in it, and she shot an arrow from it. "'It's on the South Cape.' "'Mrs. Blackett was there too, and Peggy, and Captain Flint. "'Was the great-aunt all right?' asked Titty. "'She was there,' said John. "'Come and get the arrow. It's sticking in the heather out there.' "'Did Nancy really shoot at you?' said Roger. "'Is it war?' (laughs) "'I don't think she saw me,' said John. "'But, of course, she knew I'd be down here finishing the mast. "'Come on and let's get the arrow.' Titty was already scrambling out over the rocks. If the great aunt was going for picnics in launches, the candle grease couldn't have done her much harm. John and Roger hurried after her. She found the arrow easily enough, sticking in the heather with its feathered end high in the air. It's a new arrow, said John. It's not a good one like the arrows they had last year. It's not half so well made. Titty was looking at its green feathers They must have just made it, she said. This is one of the feathers. I brought them this year. I know it because it got clipped with the scissors when I was cutting something else. The ship's parrot wouldn't like it if he knew they were using his feathers to shoot at us, said Roger. It didn't look exactly as if she was, said John. It was too secret from the others. He looked carefully at the arrow. There was a curious, wide uh, band on it near the green feathers. It had been neatly spliced with red string. In a moment, John had his knife out and had cut the end of the splice and begun unwinding the string. Don't spoil their arrows, said Titty. Well, they shot it at us, said Roger. John unwound the red string, and almost at once they could see the end of a narrow folded strip of paper that had been wound round the arrow and fastened to it by the very splice that hid it. It's a message, said Tiddy. Be quick, now we'll know. The little strip of paper that had been wound round the arrow and then hidden by the splicing of red string curled up tightly the moment it was taken off. John straightened it out. They looked at it together. On it was written in capital letters and the usual red pencil of the Amazon pirates, Show the parrot his feathers. There was no signature, but only a skull and crossbones drawn in black ink. It's a very silly message, said Roger. I don't see what it means, said Titty. It doesn't explain anything, said John. You can't call it even a declaration of war. They went slowly back into the cove of the old camp and John gave another dose of linseed oil to the mast and the others helped him to rub it in. There they are, said John suddenly, pointing out through the trees and between the headlands of the little cove, far away on the other side of the lake. The Beckfoot launch was moving along the farther shore. The swallows ran out of the trees, climbed up among the rocks and watched the launch disappear behind Wildcat Island. They're going to land there without us, said Titty bitterly. But they did not. The launch soon showed again beyond the island. Then they watched it going fast up the lake, not stopping even in Houseboat Bay, and vanishing at last behind the peak of Darien. ''The thing that's so funny about it,'' said John, ''is that Nancy did it as if it really mattered.'' ''Perhaps it does,'' said Titty, ''and we can't see how. ''I wish Captain Nancy wasn't so awfully clever.'' ''She isn't cleverer than John,'' said Roger. John said nothing. ''Show the parrot his feathers.'' It did not seem to him to mean anything at all. At last Roger reminded them that Susan had said supper was to be early and after giving one more rub down to the mast, the captain, the able seaman and the boy set off on their way back to Swallowdale. There were the four, Trout to think of as well as Susan. Roger, at least, was not likely to forget them, though the others might. They hurried up the side of the beck, crossed by the road instead of under the bridge, and climbed the steep woods to the moor, carrying the arrow with them. Chapter 21 Showing the Parrot His Feathers They found the mate in a very native mood due to the cleaning and cooking of the four trout. Fried trout ought to be eaten the moment they're cooked. You can't go on hotting them up for people. If you keep them frying too long, they dry up and you might as well throw them away. It was enough to turn anybody native to have cleaned them and salted them and got the fire just right and the butter melted in the frying pan and the four little trout sizzling noisily as if in a hurry to be eaten. And then not a sign of the crew in spite of all the trouble taken. Susan had made the frying spread out as long as she possibly could and really it was a little too much when the others came up into Swallowdale at least 20 minutes after the trout were at their best. And Roger, sniffing the good smell of them, said very happily, "'Just in time!' "'You aren't,' said Susan. "'You ought to have been here half an hour ago. "'I told you to come back straight away. "'Another time you'd better cook your own fish, "'and I'll be the one to play around and to come back just in time.' Roger was going to say that perhaps there wouldn't be any fish left if she did that when he caught John's eye and saw that the captain thought it would be just as well to take no risks with the mate. I've seen the Amazons, said John. They're not coming to supper, are they? said the mate. We've only got four fish. I didn't see them to talk to, said John. They were in the launch. Nancy shot an arrow at the point by the pike rock. An arrow with a message on it. It's all right It's all right about the great aunt, said Titty. John saw her. Let's get supper done, said the mate. We've got the arrow, said Roger. Here it is. That's your bit of bread and butter, said the mate. These are jolly good fish, said John. They couldn't be better cooked. They're better even than the ones we had the day we went fishing with Captain Flint. After that, nobody... talked of anything for some time. Titty and Roger told how the trout had been caught, one in the bathing pool and the other three in the small pools between the top of Swallowdale and Trout Town. Roger told of the bigger ones there would have been if only they had not dropped off. Everybody said how good they were to eat. When the bones of the last trout had been emptied into the campfire, Susan showed them just how lucky they were to have so good a cook as mate to the expedition. She had baked four apples to go with the rice pudding, burying them in a biscuit tin under the hot ashes. They liked their supper so much that when it was over, Susan herself brought the talk back to the arrow. She'd no sooner mentioned it than Roger handed it across to her, and everybody began to talk at once of the launch and of the shooting of the arrow which John alone had seen. (coughs) It had a message fastened to it, said John, but it doesn't seem to mean much. Show the parrot his feathers. Look at it. He gave the mate the little cold slip of papers. She unrolled it and looked at it. It doesn't seem, it doesn't look as though it meant anything at all, she said. But when Nancy shot the arrow, she hid behind the cabin and looked as if it was something that mattered very much. It isn't like the arrows they had last year, said Roger. It isn't shiny. This was true. The arrow they were looking at in the camp... "'was very rough, as if it had been made in a hurry. "'It was blunt at the end, and the wood had never been varnished. "'I suppose they are the parrot's feathers,' said Susan. "'Yes,' said Tilly, "'this one is the first that came out after we went home last year. "'I'd been saving it ever since the winter. "'I know it because it got snipped in the scissors by mistake. "'The other one came out just before we came here.' They were both in the lot I gave Nancy when they came to the island the day Roger and I discovered Swallowdale. So it must be a new arrow. It looks as if they've only just made it, said John, with nobody to help. Let's just do what the message says, said Titty. What? Show the feathers to Polly. He's awfully clever. He isn't as clever as all that, said John. If we don't know what it all means, he won't. Anyway, let's do it. Let's do what Nancy said. She'll probably ask whether we did it or not. Titty took the arrow with the green feathers and walked across with it to the ship's parrot, who was on his perch, making the most of the evening sunshine. Instantly, the parrot screamed aloud and seized the arrow with its beak and one of its claws. "'Take care,' said John. "'Stop him, he'll pull the feathers out. "'There's only a narrow splice at each end to hold the thing together. "'He'll smash it up, and then what'll Nancy say?' "'But he was too late. "'There was a noise of splitting wood, "'and in a moment the ship's parrot "'had not only torn his own feathers out of the arrow, "'but had broken the arrow itself at the splice "'just below the place where the feathers had been fastened in.' I I stop him, look at that!'' shouted John, jumping up. ''No, Polly, no, give it me. You don't want it!'' Something beside the feathers had been torn from the split and now broken arrow. Titty rescued it just in time. ''Well done, Polly,'' she said. ''Of course Nancy knew you'd do it, because she's seen you do it before.'' The ship's parrot took no notice. It didn't want the scrap of closely folded bit paper that Titty had in her hand. Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, it said contentedly, tearing shreds of wood off the arrow and dropping them round its perch. Nobody bothered about the arrow now. Titty, with trembling fingers, unfolded the paper. She saw the skull and crossbones at the top of it and a lot of writing in red pencil underneath. And she gave... The paper to Captain John. Read it aloud, she said. It's meant for all of us, said John. And he began to read. To the captain and crew of the ship Swallow, greeting from fellow mariners in sore distress. We are not supposed to go anywhere out of sight of the natives. The great aunt likes to see us all the time. We were late that day, we knew we would be, and we are living it down. But clouds have a silver lining. This is a quotation. And even lesson books have last pages. It's nearly over now. Important. Start early tomorrow by the way we came. Keep on the top of the moor heading due north until you see four firs in what used to be a wood. Follow the way they point and keep to the stone wall till you come to the road. The river is two fields away on the other side of the wood. Look for a stone barn, About a cable's length above the barn is an oak tree close to the river. Here you will find a native war canoe. Beckfoot is the name on its transom. It can't really be a canoe, said John, interrupting his reading. It's a rowing boat. Canoes don't have transoms. They're pointed at each end. "Ah, Their natives may have their own kind of canoes, said Titty. Not all natives have the same. John went on reading. Embark without fear and drop down the river to the lagoon. You know it, the one where Roger thought there were octopuses. I know, I knew there were flowers afterwards, said Roger. Water lilies. Don't interrupt the captain, said Titty. Do go on, John, read on. Cross the lagoon. Run the war canoe into the rushes on the right bank of the river. Land one scout in the wood. Let him creep through the wood. Give the owl call and wait. Travel light, but with two days' food and bags for sleeping at night. Yunga beckons, we've got a rope. We're hiding the war canoe for you tonight by the oak. You can't miss it. Don't be seen by the natives. Pretty good, the parrot. He always chews up arrows if they have his feathers in them. Do not fail us. Captain, Nancy Blackett. Mate, Peggy Blackett. Prisoners of war, but not for long. Swallows and Amazons for ever. "'Is that the end?' said Roger. "'That's all,' said John. "'The explorers looked at each other. "'Do you think it's all right?' said Susan at last. "'Well, what could be wrong?' said John. "'It's all on dry land. "'There won't be any night sailing. "'It doesn't make any difference where we sleep "'so long as the able seaman and the boy get to bed in proper time.' "'He knew at once what were the questions that were bothering Susan.' "'The able seaman and the boy listened breathlessly. "'Then there's the milk,' said Susan. "'It's no good carrying two days' milk with us, "'especially if it's as hot as it's been today. "'There must be lots of farms in the valley of the Amazon,' said John. "'And Nancy and Peggy are sure to know them. "'We can get milk anywhere. "'Only we might have to take our own can. "'But what about leaving the camp for a whole night?' We won't, said Titty. Peter Duck will look after it. We'll stow everything in Peter Duck's cave. It'll be safe enough there. What about the parrot? Oh, he'll keep Peter Duck company. I'll leave him a tremendous lot of food and water and put him in the cave too. He won't mind having a little extra sleep just for once. Or he'll keep watch and watch about with Peter Duck. I expect he's lived in lots of caves before, real pirate ones. And you know we've never tried sleeping in the bags without any tents. What if it pours? So long as it doesn't rain, it'll be all right. If it looks like rain, we won't go. John dived into his tent and came out again at once. The barometer's as steady as it can be. And there's another thing. Captain Flint would never have finished the mast up and left a message for me to hurry with the polishing and oiling. "'if Swallow wasn't nearly ready. "'Painted, I should think. "'And in weather as hot as this she'll dry fast. "'We may have her any day. "'And we can't climb mountains and sail at the same time. "'If we are going to climb Kanchenjunga at all, "'would it be a good thing to do it while we're up here?' "'Mother did say she didn't see why we shouldn't climb it "'if we wanted to,' said Susan. "'And the others knew.' that she was coming round. Just before settling down for the night, they went up to the Watch Tower Rock, climbed its steepest side, just for practice, and stood on the top of it, all four of them, looking over the moorland towards the distant hills. The sun was dropping behind them. Already the peak of Canchenyunga began to look as if it had been cut out of dark purple cardboard. To the right and to the left of it were other hills, and somewhere over the edge of the moor, the explorers knew they would find the valley of the Amazon River. Farther round to the right they could see the edges of the forest, and far beyond them, glimpses of the lake and the hills behind Rio. When the Amazons came over the moor, we saw them first over there, beyond that rock, said Titty, pointing to a jagged rock about half a mile away in the heather. But not so near, said Roger. That's the way we'll go, said John. It's just about in a line between here and the northern side of Kanchenjunga. He laid the compass on the rock and waited till the needle steadied. North north west's about it. We'll go to the rock and then strike north. High overhead there was a creaking noise, like someone very quickly swinging a big door that needs oil on its hinges. They looked up. Swans, said John at once. There were five of them, great white birds with their long necks outstretched before them, flying fast with steady powerful wing-flaps towards the setting sun. "'Where are they going?' said Roger. "'There's another lake somewhere over there,' said John. "'Over there to the west there were far, dim hills "'beyond the rim of heather that shut them in, "'like the horizon at sea. "'Beyond the heather was the unknown.' "'Perhaps the swans can see the water,' said Titty, "'flying as high as that.' I expect they can, said John. The swans seemed to fall into the distance and when they could be seen no more, the explorers climbed down from the Watchtower Rock and walked gravely back to the camp in Swallowdale, thinking of what was before them. They sat talking round the fire much later than usual. As Susan said, It was always the way on the night before an early start. There was so much to think of that it could have been useless to try and sleep. The stars were clear in the sky before they went to bed. Long after the lantern in each tent had been blown out, John sat up, took his knapsack and crawled out again into the open. He pulled his sleeping bag after him. Rummaging under the clothes in his knapsack, he found the thin waterproof covering of the sleeping bag, which in the tent he didn't use. He put the sleeping bag into it so that it would not need a ground sheet. He got back into his sleeping bag, wriggled about in it till he had found a comfortable place for his bones and settled down once more. His knapsack, which was still pretty well stuffed, "'Made his pillow. "'What are you doing?' "'This was Susan's voice in the dark. "'Trying what it's going to be like without tents. "'Let's all try,' said Roger. "'Why aren't you asleep?' said Susan. "'Can you see the stars?' said Titty. "'Yes,' said John. "'I wonder if the prisoners of war can see them from their cells.' They aren't in cells at all," said John. "If they can't get out when they want, I expect it feels as if they are." Good night," said John. "Good night, good night, good night." Came from the three tents in which were the, in, in which there were still explorers. The fourth tent was empty, and John lying comfortably stretched in his sleeping bag with his head on his knapsack. Was looking up at the stars and feeling less like sleep than ever. At least he thought he didn't feel like sleep. After a bit, he wondered whether counting stars would work as well as counting sheep going through a gap in a hedge. That was what Mother used to tell him to do when he was a little boy. He snuggled down in his sleeping bag so that only his nose was over the edge of it and began to count the stars in the Milky Way. But he had not time, really, to count the bigger stars in more than a few inches of it. It may have been the counting that closed his eyes for him, or it may have been the hard day's work on the new mast with the sandpaper and the linseed oil. Swanerdale, Chapter 22 Before the March. The camp was astir early in the morning. Susan began at once making ready for the march. Titty had woken with a plan in her head which she had told to Roger, and the two of them had taken their knapsacks and rushed off to the woods, promising to come back at once. John past them there, filling their knapsacks with small pine cones, when, after sleeping very well in the open, he was hurrying down to Swainson's farm with the milk can. They were back in Swallowdale long before he was, because he had to go first to Horseshoe Cove to give a last dressing of oil to the mast, and then round by the farm to get the milk for breakfast and to tell Mary Swainson that they wouldn't be wanting any more milk until the evening of the next day, because they were going to be away for the night. I'm just going over to the village, said Mary, using the native name for Rio. Is there anything you're wanting there? I suppose you won't be going to Holly House," said John. I'd like to tell Mother not to come here today, or tomorrow, because of our being away. Why, of course I can, and welcome, said Mary Swainson. You wait a minute while I get you a bit of paper, and you can tell her what you like. But old Mr. Swainson shouted from the kitchen and called John to come in. "Mary," he said, what are you letting him stand out there for? Come in, young man, and sit you down at the table. That's the place if you want to do a bit of writing. John went in and said good morning to the two old people. Mary got a pencil and a sheet of paper out of a drawer and set him at the kitchen table. <clears throat> Then she clattered off for the milk and while old Mrs. Swainson went on with her patchwork quilt (coughs) and the old man watched John at his writing and half hummed, half sang bits of a song about a young man saying fare thee well (coughs) to someone he was leaving behind. John wrote, don't come to Swallowdale today or tomorrow because we're going to the Amazon River for the climbing of Kanchenjunga. We are taking our sleeping bags. The crew will go to sleep at the proper bedtime. We are coming back tomorrow. Everything is quite all right. The mast is finished. Swallow will soon be back. So it's a good thing we're going to climb Kanchenjunga now. With love from us all, John. He folded it up and wrote, Mrs. Walker Holly Howe on the outside. Old Mr. Swainson watched him all the time he was writing. Eh, yeah, but you can make that pencil move, said the old man. In my young days, they didn't teach us to write as fast as all that. But then, you're not such a one for singing as that young brother of yours. He's the lad for a song, so he is. But perhaps he, perhaps he isn't as quick with the pencil. And there's me, can't write at all. Never wrote a letter these 50 years, but sing now if it comes to singing. John didn't know what to do. There were the others waiting for the breakfast milk and there was the camp to be struck and the whole expedition to get on its way. And if songs began, who who could tell how long it would be before he could stir? But luckily... Mary Swainson came bustling back at that moment and took his note and gave him the milk and got him outside, and all in such a rush that it was almost as if she had swept him out of the farmhouse door. He never knew quite how it was done, but he thanked her very much and hurried away through the forest by the shortcut up to Swallowdale. As he went, he could hear for some time the voice of the old man singing in the house. When he climbed up beside the waterfall and looked up Swallowdale, he could hardly believe it was the place he had left so short a time before. The four little cream-coloured tents were gone. The others had taken down his tent as well as their own and the valley did not look like a camp any more. Tents make all the difference to a place and now once more it was a wild rocky valley as it had been when first they came there. It didn't look like anybody's home and John knew that when they had gone back to Wildcat Island Swallowdale would look as if they had never been there the first real flood would wash the dam at the bathing pool away forever. Everything would be as it had been, and their own Swallowdale, with its neat, tents and cheerful fire, would be no more than a memory, or something he had read about in a book. It was a strange thought, not comfortable. Still, At the moment, the cheerful fire was still burning and all the signs showed that breakfast was waiting only for the milk. Here's the milk, said John, and I've sent a dispatch to Hollyhow to tell Mother where we're going. Well, that's a good thing, said Susan. Did you tell her not to tell any of the other natives, asked Titty. I forgot about that. She probably won't anyway, said Titty. at least not unless she's made certain it was all right. Did Mr. Swainson sing? asked Roger. Yes, he wanted you to be there to sing with him. I will, when we come back, said the boy. Porridge today, said the mate. We've got a long way to go. I've made enough for second helpings all round. It's no good trying to make the milk last out. We'll finish it. Everything stowed, said John. In beater duck, said Titty. Breakfast first, said the mate. Have a look at the cave afterwards. And there was plenty of room for everything. It's better than when the Amazons came. It looks almost like a shop, said Titty. Only everything in it is ours, said Roger. They made a tremendous breakfast, the sort of breakfast explorers ought to make before marching into unknown territory. There was much more porridge than ever Susan had made them before and then bacon fried till it crackled and lots of it and after that the usual bun loaf and marmalade and big mugs of tea. And while they were getting Through the bun loaf and marmalade, Susan had eight eggs in the saucepan, being turned into hard-boiled eggs to take on their journey. "'I shan't want any more till the day after tomorrow,' said Roger, when breakfast was done and Susan was giving them all, two eggs apiece, to put in the outer pockets of their knapsacks. "'Well, put these eggs in anyhow,' said Susan. Chapter 23 Overland to the Amazon Captain John, once more, looked carefully through the Amazon's message. About north is what they say, but really it's north-northwest till we get to that rock. He looked at the compass. North-northwest is what I make it made it last night, but we'll just have one more look from the watchtower. From the top of the watchtower, everybody turned the telescope towards Rio and Holly Howe. But today, there seemed to be no one about. Then they looked the other way at the peak of Canchenyunga towering into the morning sunlight. It was hard to believe that they were going to the top of it. North, northwest it is, said John, taking the bearing on the jagged rock past which the Amazons had come when they made their attempt to surprise the camp. But we need to go straight across the heather, said Susan. Not if we can find a sheep track, said the captain. There seemed to be two or three going in the right direction, and Chong chose a likely one. And in a few minutes the expedition had left the watchtower and was fairly on its way, walking in Indian file along a narrow sheep track in the heather. John first then Roger, then Titty, and Susan, last of all. This order was not kept for very long. Don't waste pine cones, said the able seaman. It's silly when we're still close to our own watchtower. We shall want all we've got when we're in really unknown country beyond the other rock. But Roger's pockets were bursting with pine cones, and every dozen yards or so he stopped and put two pine cones in the middle of the sheep track, one crosswise and one pointing along the track. Then, of course, he had to stop to see that Titty and Susan didn't tread on them by mistake. Again and again, the mate found herself brought up short by Roger, crouching in the track to make his patteran, and by Titty, who, though she urged him not to waste pinecones, stood on guard all the same to see that the mate walked over them without moving them. So the mate let the able seaman and the boy have the track to themselves, while she walked in front of them immediately after the captain. Long before they came to the jagged rock, Roger's pockets were empty, and he wanted to get a new supply out of his knapsack. This Titty would not allow. You see now, she said, if you go on putting them down like that there won't be enough to last and then we shall have no pataran just when we want the most and the most difficult part of the trail. Empty Pockets brought the boy to reason and it was agreed that only one pine cone should be laid at a time because they knew anyhow which way they were going and that they should be laid a long way apart. We don't want a regular string of them, said Titty. We want to be able to find every one, now and then, so as to be sure that we're in the right way. At the jagged rock, they caught up the others and looked back. We needn't have used a single one so far, said Titty. You can see the watchtower from here. Where we shall want the Paterhans is where we can't be sure of the way without them. Now... However, unknown country opened out before them. From the rock at which they had first aimed, they moved as nearly as possible due north. The captain kept looking at his compass, choosing a rock or a clump of bracken or heather that bore due north, walking straight to it and then choosing another in the same way. They were on a wide ridge of rolling moorland, so that often they could see not more than two or three hundred yards ahead of them, and sometimes even less. Sometimes, though, when they were on the top of one of the waves that seemed to cross the moor, they could see how the ridge sloped towards the right, where, far away, they could see the green tops of larches and pines. Somewhere below those woods must be the lake. Sometimes they could see where the moor began to drop, on the other side of the ridge, where also were the tops of trees showing beyond the heather. Once they caught a glimpse of water on that side, very far away, but even with the telescope could see no boats on it. Perhaps it hasn't been discovered yet, said Titty. That's where the swans were going, said John. Not all the moorland was covered with heather. There were wide stretches of tall green bracken and short-cropped grass burnt down by the sun. Grey rocks rose up out of the grass and heather alike. It was as if an old ragged counterpane of deep purple, patched with scraps of faded green and rusty brown, had been thrown over the earth's skeleton and the bones were showing through the threadbare places. Peewits circled overhead, swooping down towards them and tumbling and swinging up and away again, shrieking at them as if to say they'd no business to be there. Twice a curlew with his long, curved, thin beak stretched before him, screamed shrilly as he passed overhead from one valley to another. Grouse rose suddenly out of the heather with a loud whirring of wings and a shout of, Go back! Go back! Go back!